Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Now, you don't need to be told how important healthcare and health tech are in our lives these days, having been through what we've experienced in the last two years globally, and how important innovation and technology is to us in our general lives. We're not talking about apps that help us get from A to B or help us get access to data. We're talking about how this actually improves the quality of our lives and also saves lives as well. So today we're going to talk about health tech. In particular, we're going to go into the world of investing in health tech. I'm joined by Joseph McCarno, who is an early stage VC, focusing specifically on health tech. Now, the interesting thing about investing in health tech is you have to make choices. What do you invest in? Do you invest in a cure for cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's? Do you invest in medical devices, diagnostics, therapeutics? There are many, many choices that ultimately will impact people's lives. And your choice of investments will impact some people and not others. So it's not done easily. And it's also something which you have to think about in the sense that where can you get the biggest potential uplift in your investment? You look at, for example, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. We'll talk about that today on today's episode of the Excel podcast is that, you know, you've got access to funds and resources and people and you have influence. So to choose A as a cause means not choosing B and therefore you carry the weight of that opportunity cost upon you as well. So I'm really pleased to talk this through with Joseph, not only to learn about how investors invest in health tech and things that impact our lives on a daily basis, but also the wider area of healthcare and health tech and really what's happening at the moment. It's a conversation that's going to touch everything from gene therapy to microbiomes to food nutrition to cancer degenerative diseases longevity you name it all in the context of investing so if you're interested in this area stick around listen to this podcast you'll be fascinated and we'll learn as well as i did fascinating insight into the world of health tech investment so joseph the last time we met spoke i think you were just off probably quite a long fasting session how long was your fast in all? It's quite impressive. Uh, this was uh, another seven-day stint. Seven days. Yeah. And it was completely void of any food, drink. What, what were you taking during that time? So as long as, we're, as, long as I'm not intaking any sort of calories, then it, it's okay. So I, to be honest, this time around, I've never drank so much tea in my life. Yeah, uh, especially because we were fasting during a two week uh, mandatory staycation, thanks to a return from our overseas travels. And my wife, who was in the hotel room with me, was not fasting. Right. Ordering takeouts, deliveries. 
Yeah, that and, you know, the, the catering actually was pretty good from the from the hotel. It was it was catered by their in-house restaurant, which was, uh, you know, a pretty high quality place in its own right. So right. we, we were actually pretty know. spoiled. Just as an observer. Hmm. How was that for you? Like what, what point in seven days? So I've done a fast. I think the longest fast I did was about five or six days, but it would be, you know, I'd get to day four and then I'll switch to like an apple fast where actually I'll now just switch to one type of food or juice or something like that. But uh, nothing, at yeah. what point does that become tough or does it get easier? Uh, it kind of, it kind of goes in a, uh, kind of in a U shape. So in your first 24 hours, it's, it's incredibly tough because your, your body is in a state of constant, uh, constant eating and metabolism. I mean, almost everything we do in life involves around the consumption of some sort of calorie, whether you're, you know, meeting a friend, uh, whether, you know, you are indulging in a snack, whether you're trying to pass the time, you know, usually there is some sort of state of eating. So that first 24 hours, when you're making that switch from, you know, depleting your glycogen and your blood sugar into nothingness and switching over to fat that's that's kind of that's kind of the first really difficult thing and then around day five day six it started to get really really hard and i started to feel like i was really running low on juice uh, hmm. i'd say that peak is probably day two three uh, that's probably when i feel the sharpest the most energetic high. yeah that clarity yeah but when um, you're back and so day eight, when you're returning to normal, new normal, do you actually, is, is it different? Is it, are you enhanced it or does it sort of, you know, the clouds roll back in once you start getting into the, the normal I, I, consumption? You know, I, I wish I could give you this great answer of this clarity being maintained, but no, the clouds, the clouds roll in pretty much immediately. Hmm. Um, you know, you were, you were operating efficiency or sorry efficiently then you started to wind down a little bit energy levels start to dip and then then you hit it with a sledgehammer of food mm. and your inner body's like oh i've craved this i'm going to stop everything else including like higher brain functions in order to savor enjoy and slowly digest what just came into your stomach yeah well we're going to talk about health today i mean it's a big yeah. part of what we're talking about and it's interesting like with fasting it's been around for thousands of years isn't it I mean, a lot of religions and ascetics would probably fast to achieve some sort of spiritual awareness. You really, get, you really get that that sort of day two or three, that sort of real sharpness of mind, don't you? You can see where people are going. I don't know how they yeah. do it for forty days, forty days and forty nights, but you you see that it's been around not just in a religious sense, but also, you know, we, the idea of breakfast, and then you've got Easter, where traditionally people would fast, wouldn't they? They would eat up all the the pancakes, wouldn't they? On I don't know how that would work traditionally, but they would use up all their batter and then they would fast, mm. wouldn't they? And that, that's been around as a thing culturally for hundreds of years. And then you've got, you know, people would recommend, if you look at some of those old books about healthcare, they would recommend fasting as a cure to disease, didn't they? Which is amazing, yeah. isn't it? Because like these days that isn't, it's all done with medicine, right? Nobody would recommend fasting unless they were kind of a more of a holistic healthcare practitioner. So yeah. wh where did you get into fasting? Where did that come from? Did you approach it from the curiosity side or because you're in the healthcare industry or what? Well, it's, it's funny because intellectually I've known about the concept of fasting for quite a long time. You know, the, the, the concept of uh, shifting fuel source from 
uh, what you immediately get from your food to starting to work on your fat reserves, the concept of ketosis. But it wasn't really until I saw my aunt and uncle who are in their mid seventies. Um, and I hadn't seen them for almost 20 years when mm. I, when I visited them in 2018, uh, and they looked better in their mid seventies than they did the last time I saw them. And one of the major components to this, uh, newfound healthy lifestyle was uh, the liberal use of fasting. Now, mm. they didn't do the full seven day regime. They were doing a combination of intermittent fasting, you know, the 16, eight, sometimes the 18, six or the 24, like 20 off for eating uh, and some, you know, three to four day fasts every every month or every quarter or so. And then they also gave me a book on fasting from, uh, I think it was Dr. Jason Fung, the you know comprehensive guide to fasting. Uh, I can't quite remember the title of it. And I had to look at it and it kind of reaffirmed what I, what I had observed anecdotally from their own personal healthcare turnaround experience. I mean, they were full of energy. They lost mm. tons of weight, uh, mentally sharp, you know, everything that you'd hope to be when you reach that age. And they didn't, they didn't do anything crazy. They weren't running marathons. They weren't, you know, the, the, um, archetypical, uh, happy, super active overcompensating seniors you see in those retirement commercials. They were, you know, pretty normal folks living pretty normal lives, but they were just living it in a state of energy and health that would be associated with people decades younger. How do you know it wasn't genes? I mean, do you have you know, relatives who of that age who have a kind of a different outcome, different outlook? Well, we, we've both sides of our family have been blessed with longevity genes, but mm. a lot of them have been living long and miserable lives in that they had multiple chronic diseases or disabilities, but they, they, they kept trucking along, you know, surviving multiple mm. heart attacks. But this sort of um, this sort of kind of bounciness and, and spirit to them, uh, you know, was, was a bit more rare. Mm. So I think it really was a lifestyle change. And of course I saw them 20 years ago and, and how they were in their fifties as opposed to in their seventies. And there was a, there was a marked difference. And so I thought, well, you know, it took me a while. It took a bit of, a bit of a global pandemic to get me seated in one spot long enough where I could, uh, start experimenting with the, with this concept myself. And I, I found it very, very rewarding. And, you know, some of the gains that I saw, I, I saw in them, I saw in myself as well. So it's something that we're definitely, uh, my wife and I are going to do more regularly. Um, maybe not so extreme as to do the seven day fast, uh, too regularly. I think that's a once a year sort of ordeal. Um, but it is something we do definitely want to incorporate as a, as, as a daily part of, uh, preventative living and daily, I mean, intermittent and then, uh, every, you know, once in a while doing an extended fast of a few days. You said you're, you've got a family history of good genes, longevity, at least living long, not necessarily yeah. healthy for the last few years. Well, have you have any, uh, relatives? I know you've got the Romanian side as well. I don't know if that's something to do with it, but have you have relatives that have hit the hundreds or what sort of history have they got up there? I think, I think 99 was as far as we got. Right. So a fair amount of them made it into their nineties. Uh, not anyone that I'm aware of had, had crossed that critical hundred mark. So hopefully, hopefully that'll be my parents, uh, generation to be able to do that. Mm. Um, we'll see, you know, time, time will tell, 
but certainly they're living healthy. You know, they're mindful of this. They're mindful of the family history and in, in other areas. So um, it, it is an area that uh, we are we are definitely keeping mindful of. Hmm. Yeah, I had a great grandmother. Everybody could just call her grandma, and she was a farmer in Yorkshire, which is like a real farming wow. area of England. And I remember as a kid, she would come down and stay with us and they would feed her and she would eat this pork pie and pork pie is like, you know, it's pork surrounded by pork jelly, surrounded by crust, right? Super healthy. Yeah. (laughs) I remember she would take a huge, I mean, it was very traditional Yorkshire dish. She would take a huge chunk of this and I'd say to her, I I must've been about five years old and she was probably about in her late eighties then. I said, grandma, you can't eat that. That's not good for you. Because that was the traditional advice back then. She said, oh dear, at my age, it doesn't matter. She lived to 97. She'd outlived like all of her peers. And she ate that kind of food, which I think is fascinating, isn't it? That we're, we're sort of indoctrinated with this advice about food. And it's very difficult to kind of keep up with what the, the latest advice is. Experts tell us we should eat this. And then you've got all this conflicting stuff. And then you, you see these sort of paradoxes, if, if, you, if you will, like her, and then you've got, French people who live long yet eat what American nutritionists would call heart attack food, right? They're eating dairy food. And I mean, you're, you're a scientist. I mean, you work in healthcare and we're going to go deeper into the healthcare side. I mean, health tech as well, investing in health tech and med tech startups. We're going to go deeper into that side. Um, where do you stand on all of this? Because especially with like food and nutrition, it's very personal advice, isn't it? Yeah. So you can get religious about it almost. It is. And, you know, there isn't a there isn't a one size fits all solution. I mean, it's ultimately going to be an extremely personalized regimen that is ideal for you. And it's not just you as in the cells that make up your body, but also the trillions of bacteria which you filter the world through. And so you're not just eating for yourself, you're eating for the, you know, the the my you know the vast variety of microbial species that have happened to colonize the internal mm. external surfaces of your body and that will depend on your environment it'll it'll modulate over time depending on what you eat um your lifestyle behaviors and all sorts of things and, and it, it is just so incredibly complicated but on top of all of this uh, there is a large population study in the UK, again, uh, the NHS being uh, one of the largest uh, national single um, payers in the world has a ton of data and has the ability to do these large multi-generation or sorry, not multi-generation, multi-decade cohorts. And they found that, yes, okay, diet and exercise matter towards longevity, but it's not the top of the list. Hmm. You know, um, your state of mind, your purpose, and your place in community actually seem to contribute more. And the other thing that you may want to note is that that pork, that pork pie, which, you know, she ate when, when, when you were a kid, um, it might have been actually not so bad for you, mm. given that there probably weren't a lot of preservatives or processed food components in it. And Maybe she didn't eat this every single day, or maybe she burned off the calories before it had a chance to, you know, accumulate into more fat reserves. Yeah. Or maybe it was actually pork. Yeah. As opposed to meat. We don't know. 
Yeah, and maybe and maybe that pork had been fed on things that grew naturally on the farm, and maybe there weren't so many antibiotics and mm. pesticides that were present in the food that could have interfered with the metabolic processes of your cells that would have maybe predisposed them to uh, shifting into a, a cancer event later on. Mm. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things into consideration, and and and. The, the funny thing is you will find contradictory bits of information for almost anything that you can eat. So I remember, I remember coming across an article that suggested that eating pork fat was one of the healthiest things you could do. You know, it's now considered a health food at one extreme. And of course, mm -hmm. the other one is, you know, any sort of animal product will give you cancer. It's difficult, isn't it? And we'll probably talk about that in the context of um, precision public health as well, yeah. because especially with what we've been through in the last two years, everybody's an amateur epidemiologist, you know, or oh, absolutely amateur virologist that they probably know a little bit of information, which is dangerous. I want to know, I mean, so for the, for the listeners here, Joseph, and you can do a better job of telling the story. You, you run an early stage VC fund for health tech. And, um, my, my question would be, you know, I'll preface this a little bit as well, is that how do you decide what you're going to focus on? Because you could go and focus on, you've mentioned, you know, mental state, you could focus on food, you could focus on those degenerative diseases, you know, like diabetes or the, you know, Alzheimer's, for example, which are, you know, massively expensive to developed economies. And, you know, in, I was watching the documentary on Netflix about Bill Gates, uh, Bill's mind, I think it's, is. And I was really fascinated. Bill's brain. Yeah. Bill's brain. That's it. I was really fascinated by how he chose what to focus his uh, Bill Gates Foundation efforts on. And obviously, like yourself, you would have had many, many personal preferences based on your own history or experiences. And then you would have all these people saying, look, focus on this, focus on this. What about this? You know, and you could have gone for the really sexy diseases, if you can call them that, with good brands. If you like, cancer has a really good brand you know, in terms of fundraising compared to heart disease, for example, you look at the numbers, it raises significant breast cancer, significantly mm. more per death than heart disease, for example. So those kind of facts are out there, or you could focus on AIDS, or you could focus on the headline grabbing stuff. But he did all his research. And I was really fascinated. And he definitely went up in my estimation when he said that I did all my research. And you know what he's like, he's got his big bag of books, which he carries everywhere. And you know, he will read this stuff. And he came out of it and said, I want to focus on diarrhea. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, that is so like out there in terms of I mean, somebody who, you know, really doesn't care what other people think of him, but cares what matters. Because, I mean, he said, look, we could solve the problem of diarrhea because it kills I don't know, hundreds of millions of people every year, dysentery or gastrointestinal diseases with good sanitation and good toilets. But in terms of sort of the sexiness of it, it's right at the bottom. You know, you imagine cocktail party stuff. What are you doing? Yeah, you know, building toilets to solve diarrhea problems in the third world, and it's like or the developing world, and people are like, mm, oh, great. What else? How's the wife? Moving yeah. on. But I was fascinated by his thought process. I don't know if you've seen that documentary and what you thought of it, and maybe how that kind of reflected on your own choices as well. But have you seen that documentary? I mean, what I do you have. think about it's, his choices? It's it's, it's really good and it makes complete sense. I mean, uh, you know, the combination of clean water, antibiotics, vaccination, 
has saved more than any advanced molecular therapy that we're looking at right now. Soap, like just soap. Hmm. How many lives has soap saved, right? And, and you're absolutely right. These topics are not sexy, but they're also necessary. And now there are different levels of infrastructural complexity if you're trying to, you know, radically expand access to toilets where there are no sewer systems. You know, what are the new technologies that you need to do that allow you to kind of have decentralized, uh, you know, waste management and, and sanitation? And that's, that's a very different problem than, you know, building the next app. Hmm. So but why would you choose to focus or why would he choose to focus on something like that as opposed to building the next app? What would be the thought processes there? Well, it depends on what function he wants to maximize. If he's maximizing the amount of uh, disease burden reduction to the greatest extent possible, then you need to start with these really, really big challenges. And he has the resources in order to make a dent. And why, why wouldn't you go after something like cancer? Because, you know, when everybody talk about the cure for cancer, it's always such a big thing. And it's a consistent thing in culture, isn't it? As if it's like yeah. a major cultural milestone, if we were to achieve. And to some extent, there may never be a cure for cancer, but there may be just kind of treatments, right? Yeah. Why do we keep talking about that and not these things? Well, so, so why don't we particularly go after cancer? Again, it's one of those challenge areas where you do need really deep pockets you need to really put in a lot of effort in understanding how cancer occurs how it adapts and changes in response to time treatment environment even state of mind there's so many different things that can influence the impact and outcome of the disease sorry the impact of treatments and the outcome of disease that it, it does take a lot of resources. And I do think we're, you know, we see the end of cancer within our lifetimes. And maybe, mm. you know, this is going to be one of those predictions, which is going to be uh, proven wrong again. Um, but I, I do feel quite optimistic with the advent of uh, immuno-oncology and understanding how cancer eludes our immune system in very few cases. But those are the cases in which you do see uh, you know, the malignancy develop and spread and ultimately uh, be responsible for your for your demise if it's not, uh, you know, uh, treated uh, promptly and with the right tools, with the right therapies. Mm. Uh, now, we are going after cancer, but we're going at it in a different sort of way. So we have invested in a diagnostics company that has the potential to identify cancer in a very early stage. And this is where almost everyone in the world can do something about it because if it gets to the point where it's a stage four cancer it's spread throughout your entire body you're going to need some pretty heavy firepower and some pretty heavy infrastructure to try to deal with this so if you're in a rural community and six hours away from a hospital and you make a hundred dollars a month that is well outside of the realm of the possible for you unless your government is paying for the bills and more often than not, it, it, it kind of isn't for these cases. However, if you're able to detect the cancer when it's a pre-malignant phase or a stage one, you can cut it or you can treat it with radiation, right? And that's going to be a heck of a lot cheaper than, mm -hmm. you know, $100,000 worth of targeted antibodies. So, so that's the area, that's the area that we, we would really 
hope we can make a big difference. Now, there are many companies out there, some more famous than others, like look at Grail, that's trying to be this uh, panacea of solution for early cancer diagnosis. And I, I hope they're successful and I hope we're all successful in trying to make an impact on this terrible disease or, you know, what is being dubbed in popular culture as the, uh, you know, emperor of maladies. In fact, cancer is what I initially studied. I did my PhD developing new cancer therapeutics. Hmm. When you invest in these startups and well, let's back up a little bit and talk about the fund sure. itself. How many startups have you invested in, in this space? Yeah. So now, so now with our, with our first fund, we've invested in 14 companies across uh, 11 countries and five continents. So we're a little bit, uh, eccentric in that we, we don't really care where a startup is from as long as they're solving a major, uh, unless they're solving a major problem basically mm. in, in health. What's a major problem? How do you define that? Um, so I think when you asked the earlier question around how do we pick our battles? It's really kind of an overlap of the overall disease burden, um, the current standard of care, our comfort and expertise in that particular area, and then the quality of the opportunities that come in front of us. Hmm. And so I wish I could be very prescriptive and say, okay, these are the top five causes hmm. that we want to go after. And yes, there are certain areas which we do care about more than others. And you'll see it in our investments as well. Um, we want to look at things like, you know, early cancer detection, which we have placed a bet in, uh, respiratory health. So asthma, COPD, pneumonia is an area mm. that we really care about. Well, that's one with a disease burden that nobody really talks about, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the, the fatality yeah. figures from respiratory, yeah, it's right uh, up there. Yeah, Pneumonia is the leading killer of children under six on the planet. Wow. And yeah. so if you can, if you can do something about that and, and doing something about that means catching it early enough that you could treat it with simple antibiotics hmm. or at least, you know, keep an eye out to make sure it doesn't deteriorate really quickly instead of waiting until they get so bad that they have to go to the hospital and then their odds of survival are much, much lower, especially if you're very far from the hospital. When you talk about disease burden, will there be causes? A little bit of an unfair question, but why not? I'll go for it. You. Will there be a cause where somebody comes to you and you say, look, either this isn't a big enough of a problem, even though it's got a lot of attention, or I feel like we can't really contribute to this because, you know, maybe it's out of our sphere of knowledge or whatever. Are there yeah. areas like that, for example? Yeah. So if somebody came to you like with an AIDS um, diagnostic or maybe on the other side, on the, the pharmaceutical side or, you know, or even device side, would you look at that and say, hey, look, you know, we made such great process, progress in AIDS, maybe there's not a lot I can add in yeah. value here. Is that kind of a discussion that really happens? Uh, that is a factor of consideration. I mean, if we can't really add value to the investment, then what are we needed for? You know, mm -hmm. why can't they just get uh, some random money on the street? Because there's lots of money running around. Um, that being said, if we do really, really love a solution, we'll still try our best to add whatever value we can. And I'm pretty sure that we can still contribute positively, um, to a lot of, uh, to a lot of different options out there, even if we don't have direct experience, because, you know, we've all, we've all run businesses. We've been doing strategy for multinational, uh, life sciences, insurance, and, 
and health system organizations out there. So I'm sure there's somewhere where we can contribute positively to their efforts mm. to, to, to get their solution out there. Um, but there are some areas where, you know, it's like, look, we, we just don't know anything about this space. Um, let's, uh, let's defer this, uh, opportunity to someone who might. Mm. And similarly, there are solutions you brought up, you know, you brought up Bill Gates and his toilets, right? Where our pockets are just simply not deep enough to really get it out to where it would be done justice. Um, and it's really one of the key reasons why we do not invest in therapeutics because to get a new drug to market, um, it requires a, a different skill set. It requires far deeper pockets and there's not a lot we can do to change the outcome. You know, the, the therapeutic either works or it doesn't. Whereas if it's a medical device, at least you can change the design a little bit. Maybe you can pivot the application. Maybe, you know, there are certain manufacturers that might be more suitable for making that device than others that we could at least, you know, try to help with, or there could be changes in business model that might make it more palatable. But if a drug doesn't work, then what do you do with it? Mm. Other than kind of go through another huge random search exercise to see whether, you know, whether there's another aspect of human biology it might interface with and uh, have a have a positive therapeutic outcome, which is a business model for some, you know, bright biotech entrepreneurs. They mm. go take a bunch of drugs that have been shelved by the pharma companies and see if they can give them new life. That's just yeah. not within our that's just not We've within our competency. That, yeah. Then on the other side of that question would there be areas which you feel are completely you know short in supply of good solutions you say look this area that we need more it's just really not getting prominence what would be those causes i mean we obviously we talked about some of the stuff you're investing in, like um cancer diagnostics but what else out there would you say look there's just a real shortage right now this needs attention ah oh, it's it's a it's a very long list to be honest mm. um you know, one of one of the areas that I think is really difficult is not per se an area of medicine. I mean, okay, look, there's a lot of people that are saying now we can do telemedicine, we can do telespecialities, you know, we can start uh, collecting, you know, telemetry at a distance. And those are all places that we've invested in. But I think one of the challenges right now are really um, distribution and financing. And this is an area that we've made a couple of bets in um you know reach 52 is one of those uh mm. you know papaya is another one as well where you know okay sure maybe you have the products and services but how do you increase access to them like how do you increase them physically and how do you ensure that the patients are able to you know afford it so one area of this is if you can if you can develop novel financing methods and you know people talk a lot about micro insurance or small or small cooperatives where you can then pool your finances and resources across a village and as needed um, be able to take care of uh, your your village member when they fall sick uh, that you know that those are some examples of it and then the other the other part of it is you know um we might have all these really great devices that can go you know take telemetry remotely like, you know, we invested in a very affordable digital stethoscope, another device that could monitor multiple biomarkers over time. 
you know the community needs it. Um, you know there are people in the community who could even perhaps afford it and pay for it. But how do you physically get it from you know Finland or the factory in China to where they're actually needed in that rural community? And so you you have traditional distributors that will work on high margin businesses. They'll they'll move capital equipment to hospitals. But how do you how do you then get some of these innovative products to some of the I guess more grassroots sort of um, I guess points of sale? And that's that's a gap that we've noticed. There are some companies that are trying to do this, uh, and I've I've started to see emerge especially in our own backyards, but still it's, it's nowhere near where it should be and could be. Uh, and, and I think, you know, pharma has done a pretty good job of this. I, I won't say super good, but pretty good job of this, you know, consumer packaged goods company have done a pretty good job at this. So when, when do we start seeing this with the med tech innovations? Hmm. Reach 52 was an interesting one you mentioned. Tell us a bit about that one. Yeah. So, so what reach 52 does is they, train community healthcare workers and provide them with a tech stack and, and you know, an inexpensive internet connected device that can basically allow them to perform health screenings, uh, you know, health risk assessments, health education, as well as empower these community health workers to act as the kind of, I wouldn't say last mile, I'd say the last hundred meters for, sorry, I'm mixing imperial and metric here. Sorry for that. Um, for for you know high quality low cost generic pharmaceuticals as well as uh, the sale of microinsurance policies mm. so they take somebody who would you know who might be staying at home or might be doing something else but they turn them into basically the closest thing you're going to get to a healthcare worker and then they empower them to then provide these critical products and services to the population and also increase general health awareness Mm. And they've done this now in five countries, uh, over half a million people and a thousand villages. Have you been out there on the ground and seen this? No, oh, I wish I wish I could. The closest I've been able to do this now, because a lot of their work happened actually kind of post COVID. They were mm. really in just Philippines and Cambodia beforehand. And it took sometimes three days to get to the villages to where they're operating. And so again, the closest thing I've had is just the live video calls mm. to see what's going on there and seeing some of the photos and videos of the impact. Yeah. I must be rewarded, but you used to travel like crazy. I remember you still travel a bit now, but pre COVID you were always on a plane or in a hotel somewhere. So that's true. But those are fast travels, Graham. Like, yeah. you know, you're, you're in and out. I, I remember I did a day trip to Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You know, That's first possible. flight in, last flight out. That that right. was possible, but when you're trying to get to these communities, yeah, it's not like it's a plane in and a plane out. It's a plane, maybe a smaller plane, if you're lucky. Maybe a bus, maybe a boat, and it could be it could be six days before you're able to make a quick round trip. Mm. Wow! Notwithstanding the unpredictable schedules as the size of the vehicle shrinks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the roads become more potholed. Exactly. I remember when I was backpacking uh, in, in my 20s, we, we crossed uh, from Thailand to Cambodia to Vietnam over land and, and, and river. And that was, that was an ordeal even you know, mm. back then. And those were kind of like the well-trodden paths. Mm. 
And so I can't imagine what it's like trying to get really deep into these communities that, you know, are quite remote. And take medical equipment as well. Yeah. I'm curious about the commercials. I won't ask for specifics, but just the whole idea of commercializing health tech. And, uh, you know, I'm sure some people think that it should be done as a charity because, you know, to some degree we do donate money to causes. And, you know, I've got so many questions about this, so I'll just throw all of these out and we can kind of deal with them. The first one is I'm always curious, like, you know, when you donate to cancer research, who is that is actually that going to is there sort of these group of these pro bono doctors and clinicians who are kind of like with their pipettes and drips or whatever kind of testing this stuff or is that actually going to big pharma that's always one question i never really knew e- even like you know with any kind of disease that people collect on the street too so i was never sure about that and then i think people see that as the gateway into healthcare and supporting healthcare in some way, obviously, apart from their taxes and health assurance, that it's through a charity. And then you've got these amazing stories like the the guy who discovered the polio vaccine. I know we've talked about this before, who rather than patenting it, patenting it, he decided to release it to the public good. And I think there's been cases of this, like with Volvo and the seat belts and so on. And you may look at that and think, well, that's a precedent that what if I was involved in that, you know, what if you found a cure for cancer? Just like, you know, let's say, you know, thought experiment and it was found, would you then, you know, for your investors monetize that? There must be a real interesting dilemma or is that maybe too sort of binary? It doesn't actually happen like that. So I've got so many questions about the commercials because I imagine people sometimes when they talk to you who don't know a lot about what you do probably think either there's some ethical issues or they think that you should be doing this as a charity. Well, that is that naive of me to say, or does that actually people, some people actually think like that? No, I, I, I think uh, it's not naive at all. I think some people do think like this. So let's, let's start at the top. So you started talking about donating to charities and, and, and where does that money go? Um, I'm going to give you the, uh, you know, the horribly unsatisfying answer of it depends. It depends on which charity you're you're donating to, but let's let's uh, let's make one up. Let's call it the Cancer Foundation, and they said they're going to take your donation to support cancer research. So, what does it actually mean? So, you'll have it depends whether it's a competitive grant or not, but you'll have a pool of money. Let's say it's a, it's a grant for two million dollars to solve a particular, you know type of breast cancer let's let's just let's just give that as an example then you'd have um, principal investigators or scientists usually affiliated with an academic institution that then write proposals to say you know if i'm gonna get this two million dollars this is these are the experiments i want to run and uh we'll see if we can find something that can make a difference in this disease and then that money is awarded which then they use to you know pay their lab technicians maybe take on a few additional graduate students and uh, you know, the, the time materials required to run these experiments as well as the, you know, travel to conferences to meet their fellow scientists and present their work as well as publishing into peer reviewed uh, journals. So that's the principal use of it. Um, sometimes it could be sponsoring field research. It could be sponsoring ethnographic studies to understand, you know, what are the actual patient lives? What is their journey? what are they what are they experiencing it could be looking at specific case studies it really depends on you know what the foundation is trying to achieve 
and the and this and the scope of the proposals that they receive from the various scientists could this potentially be going to pharmaceutical companies maybe indirectly as part of the materials that they procure to start testing i remember in my own cancer research uh, i procured gleevec which was uh you know not the cheapest of cancer drugs to test in combination with an intervention that was developing that's that's one example um you know, more often than not, these pharma companies also have their own foundations and they give grants uh, to, 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 the same, to a similar effect. It might be more strategically aligned with what the pharma company is working on as a therapeutic area, or it could be just a disease of interest for the owners of the pharma company, especially if it's a privately held one where they have less uh, external shareholder scrutiny and less quarterly decision-making impacting their priorities. So that, that kind of answers the, you know, the sort of first question. Then the other question around how do you, how do you make things sustainable? Would you give out the cure to cancer for free? I think, again, it depends. Because, yes, you might have the cure to cancer, but how are you going to prove that it's safe? How are you going to prove that it works? How are you going to give people the confidence to then, you know, adopt this uh, as opposed to anything other than as a last resort and they're out of options? Because unfortunately, it still costs a lot of money to run these clinical trials to prove that, you know, it is what it claims to be. And if there are any things that you need to worry about. So, you know, there, there have been all these cynical arguments to say, oh, this, uh, you know, this vitamin X, you know, is actually really curing cancer, but, you know, no one can make money off of it. So no one wants to test it. Um, I think that's kind of going too far in the other direction because there still are you know, national research funds that can still do clinical studies to a certain extent to see whether it works or not. So if we had a really promising candidate and it just happened to be an off the shelf nutrient or an ingredient you can include, I'm pretty sure we would have found it already. You know, cause it's, it's not like, it's not like all this happens in a vacuum and, and mm. governments are kind of just sitting on their hands saying, nope, we're not going to fund anything to do with clinical trials. No, of course they, of course they still do. There's still research interests. There's still, all these other organizations and paths by which you can investigate things, maybe not tested on 10,000 people, but tested enough to say, um, hey, this is promising. Um, maybe we go, you know, American example, go to the NIH and say, look, this is really, really promising. Um, can we have a larger amount of money to prove this? And, and yeah, sometimes it'll, it'll go through. So where does a, a VC fund fit in all of those pathways? It, you know, because as a, man on the street my interactions with them are through you know donating to causes or awareness of big pharma I mean obviously government initiatives as well why do we need to have these VC funds operating within this scope is it because these guys have you know blind spots or shadow areas or is it because it's you know you're dealing with stuff which is pre sort of their cutoff point which they'll consider something how does it all sort of interface together it's all of the above you know, sometimes these hypotheses don't come from academic research institutions. And if you're not coming from a from an academic center, it's really difficult to get grant funding. So where are you mm -hmm. going to get your money from in order to test this hypothesis? And sometimes there is, you know, perhaps an attractive commercial opportunity, but one that might not be scientifically all that interesting. So it wouldn't get the grant money. Um, now, fundamentally, a VC is going to want some sort of financial return. Now, depending on the nature of the fund, it might be exclusively financial or there might be some strategic or, or social interest in it as well. D 
depending on the expectations of the investors supporting the VC fund. And so where VC fits in really depends on what their mandate is. So if they're looking for a pure financial return, they're going to look for something that's extremely commercially attractive and giving something out for free unless there is some way to monetize the data for that or to generate you know value in another way um that would make a compelling investment case is is going to be really really challenging um however if that if if the vc was more about venture philanthropy and the objective of the financial return was to further the venture philanthropy so in a way have a, a mechanism to recycle the funds maybe they'd be a little bit more open to it even if it's not sold for the highest profit margin possible mm. as long as there was a good impact and the the opportunity for you know the oppor- for for the return to be sustainable or driving something else so so again i've given you another it depends yeah i know it's a good analysis of it isn't it it's uh you know people don't understand how this industry operates and they don't understand why there's a need for all these different players. Well, the, the challenge is it's not a monolith. Mm. You know, there, there are different stage mandates. There are different sector mandates. There are different return mandates. And I, I often, I often mention to entrepreneurs that, you know, sometimes you don't even need VC funding. It's kind of like this default mentality to say, okay, I'm doing a startup, it's time to go raise venture capital. But there are all sorts of different sources of financing available to these entrepreneurs that perhaps they, they don't even think to explore. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's do this. Let's go back um, 50 years and look forward, a bit of a time travel experiment, Joseph, and before you were born. And uh, so in the last 50 years of all the sort of health tech, healthcare, med tech devices, even therapeutics that have been discovered and successfully rolled out, if you like, um, looking forward, if you could look at all the stuff that came out in the, the last 50 years and that, I mean, I'm sure in, in human history, there hasn't been that sort of level of development, which if you could have done, would you have been proud of putting your name to and say, that's the one of all the things that came out in 50 years. That's the one I really wish, you know, if my fund started 50 years ago, we backed. Is there a particular one that you say that would be the one? Yes. Obviously it's gone now, but. Yeah. Um, one close to my heart uh, and, and the reason I went into science uh, would have been recombinant DNA technologies. So if I could have been one of the earlier investors in Genentech or Genzyme, hmm. that that would have been fantastic because this was for you know the first time that we coded biology. You know we were able to manipulate the fundamental instruction set of life to do something differently and to have the ability to impact human health in a positive way. How is that impacting human health in a positive way now? How can we see that on a mass scale? Well, almost, uh, almost every, almost every new drug, uh, you know, has, has its roots. I mean, how is it being produced? It's being grown in bacteria, you know, single mammalian cell cultures or, or yeast at industrial scales, you know, going back to the, you know, the basics, diabetes, right? 
creating insulin. You know how they used to get insulin? They used to, you know, mash up dog pancreases. Wow. I imagine it was something gory and Victorian. Yeah. And so now you can create it en masse in bioreactors with perfect purity. And without a single animal being harmed? Yeah. Wow. Without a single one. Um, you know, new cancer therapies, you know, when we generate a new antibody to something, where is it being made? It's being made in these bioreactors. Hmm. And, you know, it's, it's going a step further where now you can have direct chemical synthesis or direct, uh, you know, cell free processes. They're still, you know, not as efficient, but you're starting to get to a point where you can start doing this. And then the other, the other, the other thing about this is maybe, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a, a leap too far, but even in, in food tech and all these alternative meats and, and plant-based meats, um, what is, what is enabling, uh, the impossible burger, right? What, what, what gave it that kind of meaty taste? It was heme. It was heme grown, I think in yeast cultures. And right. what more could we be doing? Um, it's, it's had benefits in bowel remediation. Uh, you know, you can generate all these catalytic enzymes that break down toxic pollutants into, you know, maybe less uh, benign or sorry, less uh, harmful uh, metabolites. You know, the biotechnology revolution really came about simply because of these, you know, early experiments and manipulations where we, you know, we coded stuff for the first time ourselves. In how 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 far back do we have to go, for example, with Genentech for you to be a VC fund hearing their pitch? What are we talking? 20 years, 30 years? Uh, I can't remember the exact date. I do believe it was either the, the late 70s or the early 80s oh, wow. right. where, where, where this really started to happen. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I'm, I'm forgetting my dates. No, that's fine. I mean, you know, you don't have to remember. So we're talking 30 plus years. I mean, yep. you've just been... Well, keep, keep in mind, Graham, you know... Uh, DNA as kind of the, the purpose and the coding nature of DNA. Like we thought it was just junk in a cell until, mm. you know, I think it was the, the fifties. And again, I'm my, my, my memory of dates are pretty horrible, but this, the crystal structure of DNA was only determined, uh, not, not too long ago. Mm. Sequenced as well. I mean, you've mentioned something as well today about the, you know, um, microbes about bacteria as well and people talking about sequencing the biome as well as the next sort of big frontier in human health yeah that would be phenomenal isn't it that you know i don't know to what extent that's happening but we can sequence, sequence the genome we can sequence our genes effectively yeah. and that enabled i guess what you were talking about but there now is this frontier in bacteria no absolutely we have incredible diversity in in our in our microbiomes and we don't entirely know what they do yet i mean there have been associations to say okay you might have one strain of bacteria and that's associated with uh you know people being able to metabolize sugar more effectively right mm. 
or these folks might be more prone to being skinny for whatever reason, or it might be more prone for inflammation or even neurodegeneration diseases. There's a, there is a, uh, a putative link between the kind of gut bacteria you have and the development of Parkinson's, for example, mm-hmm. or even, or even Alzheimer's is, is thought to have some sort of element there, which is, which is pretty wild. Yeah. It's amazing. I think, I think yeah. on, on, on the fun side, if you want to look at a interesting medical condition is, uh, auto fermentation syndrome, where your gut bacteria produce alcohol from the food that you make. Yeah. <laughs> Right, it's like sustainable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I can see where that's going. Um, yeah, I've heard people talking about biomes and, and emotion as well, and about how bacteria may be controlling our emotions. I mean, just a, a crazy question. To, dopamine, yeah. It's, I mean, you think about our understanding and genes, how much that's changed since the early days of Genentech. But you know, where we could be in 30, 40 years' time with that in bacteria is just unknown, really. I feel Can't like imagine. it's a. I feel like it's a giant matryoshka doll. You know, yeah. you, you, you think you think you understand it, then you go a level deeper and say, oh, crap, there's another doll inside. Yeah. And you think you understand it, and you go, crap, there's another doll inside. So the um, one of the things that is, is starting to uh, make itself quite apparent is that in addition to the microbiome, you have, uh, I don't even remember the proper word for it, but you've got all these bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria. Hmm. And there's a great diversity amongst those. And the presence of various bacteriophages will have modulatory effects on the kinds of bacteria that you have. So again, you've just had another layer of complexity. Mm, the and viral simil- level. Yeah. And, and wow. similarly, on the, on the DNA side, just knowing your sequence isn't enough. You know, which genes are active, which genes are not active. And that's determined by your, your epigenome, which is the methylation states on your different base pairs. So you can have like a, a little CH3 added to your base pair and that'll change oh. whether potentially that gene is, is, is red or not. And you see scientists like Dr. David Sinclair out there talking about, you know, the information theory of aging where, oh. you know, your, your DNA is kind of like the pits burned into the metal platter in a, in a CD. If you remember what CDs are um, and you're, and your epigenome is really like the the protective plastic and that gets scratched over time it doesn't mean the audio data on the cd is lost but your ability to read it is and it's and it's really that that is causing you know your cells to not perform like they used to when they were younger and perhaps contributing as one of the key factors one of the key contributing factors to aging so that'd be interesting yeah. to to see where this one goes as well. But again, it's it's like this giant Matroshka doll it just keeps getting more and more complicated. And will we eventually win? Will we eventually be able to generate enough information and, and understanding as well as enhance our processing power of the data in order to be predictive? Or are we always going to be reactive? Hmm. It's a great question. I, I would ponder that. I, well, all I know is we're making progress and we're winning in some aspects. Oh, certainly we're, yeah. we're, we're living longer, you know? Well, I mean, age is a fantastic example, isn't it? I remember yeah. going to school in the eighties and it was just such a terrifying thing growing up as a teenager and AIDS because we didn't really yeah. understand it. But now we have not saying it, we've cured it, but it's certainly under control yeah. compared to where we were. So, you know, you, we take that for granted. It's now, yeah. you know, you think about the threats that face us now, 
Well, the, the more extreme example is COVID. I mean, we're all living through it, but yeah. when in human history have we developed multiple therapeutics and a vaccine to a new disease in less than a year? Mate, let's end on that question. That is an awesome point. I love it. I'm conscious of the time as well. And I want to ask you one last question. Sure. Because you've been an amazing guest as well. And it's just a bit random. It's like, what was the last song or tune that you played on your piano behind you? Uh, so the, the, the sheet music behind me is for Piano Concerto and uh, A Minor by Edvard Grieg. And that's the last thing I played poorly. Is it a pretty complicated one? Yeah, it is. And uh, I'm just getting back into playing piano again. So, so one of the things that I, I really love and I almost feel evangelical about it is taking one day off from you know, electronics. Now, obviously that's kind of not a, not a full electronic fast because my piano is electronic, but, you know, taking a break from screens, taking a break from your phone, your computer, your television, the internet, and just focusing on doing things slowly. And I do that once a week. I do that every Saturday and it has been phenomenal for my mental health as well as in a way my productivity, because, you know, you can't get away from thinking about work as if, if what you're doing for a living is your passion, but you can certainly think about it differently. You've been listening to the XL podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.